We have uh, a couple of new individuals here that have not been here before. Now, because we didn't announce them earlier, they could be out with their mommies. But we have here Ada Raquel Ruiz, who is here for the first time. Is she out with mommy somewhere? Or is she in the back? There they are. Alejandrina, hold up this young lady who has entered our presence today. Is she sleeping? Don't wake her up. No, please, could we see her? But but do it without waking her. Here we go. The unveiling. There she is. Oh. And then I know that that Kai Jeffrey Holmgren is here this morning also because I saw him. Jeff, would you like to stand with your son? (laughs) Praise the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) You don't think so, do you? (laughs) Are you jealous? Um. Another thing that we haven't done uh, yet is we have not introduced to the church a family that we have been assisting with. We've had the Guzmans here with us since July 11th, and some, <coughs> some of you have excuse me, <coughs> some of you have brought things and assisted with them. They are from Peru. They came here uh, with very little, wanting to make a new life for themselves in Canada. They are a member of the Churches of Christ from uh, Peru, and I just wanted to introduce them this morning. Felipe, Nancy. Please stand. Is Berenice with you too? There she is. That is wonderful. It's wonderful to have new children. It's wonderful to have new families. God continues to bless us in every way. (coughs) And I want him to bless my voice. We have been focusing uh, for several Sundays now on what we could characterize as spirituality. And the idea of specifically Jesus' spirituality, the spirituality of Christ. We've talked about abiding with Christ, time with God, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, his closeness with the Father, a number of things. Talked about his prayer life some, just the, the spirituality of Jesus himself. And that's because we want to be like Jesus. We can look up here and that's what it says. To be like Jesus, that's our mission, that's our goal. At the same time though, We don't want to be like Jesus to be just another rule for us. It's not just another law. Now be like Jesus. As if that is inherently or primarily for us a command. It's not primarily for us a command. It's something that we long to do. I remember very clearly uh, we had been living in Victoria for about two days. And uh, Lauren and Louise Davies are here from Victoria. Lauren was an elder for years in Victoria. Good to have them here this morning. They will remember when my son Adam was three and a half years old when we first moved to Victoria. My fa- I know it was, was just a couple of days after we moved there because um, my father-in-law, who had helped us move, was still there. And we all sat down for dinner in just the, like the first or second night of being in Victoria. We sat down for dinner, and Robin served corn. Adam did not like corn. But his father-in-law was there, and I had to make the—you know—I had to be a father, show my father-in-law that I could be the, you know, the dad who's going to 
teach his son what's right. So I, you know, I told Adam, you got to eat this corn. He said, nah, dad, I'm not eating the corn. You know, yeah, Adam, you know, you really need to, to eat the corn. And so we had a little thing about corn at the dinner table. So Adam finally, through incredible coercion, and I don't know what I threatened him with, but he, he took the corn and he put it in his mouth, but the kid was not about to swallow that corn. Now, to me, this makes no sense. You don't like the food. Get it over with. But he chose not to get it over with. And so we sat there at the dinner table for 45 minutes with Adam having this corn held in his mouth. And he wasn't being rebellious. Like, it's not like he was saying, I refuse to eat this corn. It wasn't like that at all. Adam just, he didn't really have that kind of personality. Uh, This was the kid who, if I said, Adam, you're going to get a spanking, he would go into the bedroom, lay on his stomach, and wait for me to come. Um, That's true. In that way, he was quite compliant. But he refused to eat this corn. And so it, it wasn't a case of defiance. It was a case of he knew what would happen if he tried to swallow that corn. It wasn't going down. And there might be other stuff that would come back up too. And so he sat there with corn marinating fermenting in his mouth for 45 minutes. Finally, like we didn't make him eat the corn. He finally spit the corn out on his plate and we were done because we realized it was hopeless. Like we could be there all night. We had lost this battle. And it made me reorient my thinking about what to do when a child doesn't want to eat their food. Now, not that I have a plan for you parents today and so I I don't even want to pretend as though I really reached the final answer there. I just know that on that evening, it was not the appropriate thing. And so he didn't eat the corn. Well, I had this idea in my head that this needed to be a rule. This needed to get done. But there really was a bigger picture there, and that was we should have enjoyed our meal more. He should have enjoyed his meal more. We should have had a better time with this so-called rule or this idea than just the keeping of this rule. It needed at some point to be thrown out. Well, that's because sometimes, like the best rule shouldn't always be thought of as being inviolable. In other words, we shouldn't get to the point where we say, we're going to keep this no matter what, or this has always got to be kept because it's a rule. And to make your kid eat the food because I told you to, when they ask why, just because that's the way it is, doesn't always make a great deal of sense. And so this morning I want to focus for a few minutes specifically on the interaction of Jesus with Scripture and the notion of reading Scripture and for what purpose. What is the idea behind reading Scripture? And I want us to look first at this passage that Ron read, Matthew 5, 17 and follow me. Look at this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands <coughs> excuse me, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Does that sound rigid or not? Doesn't that sound pretty rigid? 
Like your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees. Not even the smallest stroke of a pen should be released from the law. We need to stick pretty close to this. Jesus says you won't be making it into heaven if we're not clinging pretty closely to the law. That's quite an interesting passage. Here's another one. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Now that's interesting. On the one hand, it is kind of an elevation of the law. Don't murder, the law says, but Jesus kind of takes it a step further. So it's kind of an elevation or a deepening of the law. And yet, notice what Jesus does. He actually does some adjustment. Don't let the smallest part of the law not be adhered to, Jesus says. And yet Jesus himself, I think because he's the son of God and has the authority to do so, does some adjustment. I think that's interesting. The next one, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Also some adjustment there. Jesus kind of deepens that commandment. He does something with the word of God there. He, at the very least, he interprets it uh, in an interesting way. Another one. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Again, kind of a, an adjustment in terms of the passages that... Uh, <clears throat> or out of the Old Testament that Jesus uses, he has the, the law, and yet he does something with the law. He doesn't just say, well, we're just going to keep this exactly as it is. He actually does some adjustment. Now, an entirely different kind of passage. Look at this. John 8, verses 1 through 11. <coughs> Excuse me. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now that's interesting too. Because there were provisions in the Old Testament for what you do with a woman caught in adultery. She was to be stoned. Now, as it turns out, I think what Jesus is probably doing here is that he's a little bit ticked that they didn't also bring the man. Because the Old Testament is very clear that in addition to the woman being in trouble, the man also is in trouble and there should be some kind of dual punishment here. But at the very least, Jesus doesn't really carry out what we might have expected him to carry out. And why is that? I think because Jesus is Jesus, of course, and he can moderate things as he does. And in this case, because he recognizes that there's a larger, larger principle at work. In this case, that larger principle being something like 
um, forgiveness and grace. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Okay, then I want you to look at this one. John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. You diligently studied the scriptures, Jesus says, because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. That's very interesting. I don't think that the point of Jesus is that he doesn't want us to diligently study the scriptures. But clearly he wants us to study the scriptures and to do so diligently with some kind of particular mindset. And so it seems to me like there's, I don't want to call it a contradiction, but there's at least some kind of nuancing here, some kind of interesting thing that Jesus does with Scripture. And my point would be something like this, that Jesus, when it comes to talking about the Bible and our relationship to it and our focus on Scripture, is not wooden. Like he doesn't have this straight jacket for the way in which Scripture is to be interpreted, the way it's supposed to be looked at. And for Jesus, clearly there are times when the law is not treated like a law book, but that he does something else with Scripture. This makes total sense, then, why when Jesus is tempted by Satan that he starts quoting Scripture and calling things to mind because he's applying it in his life. It's being real for him at that point, and not in any way wooden but he interprets it for his own needs at that point to bolster his life and to build himself up. He didn't always read it and apply it in the same way. Jesus views scripture instead as living and active, like streams of living water. Isn't that the image that Jesus talks about, how we receive from him streams of living water? I think that's what he intends for scripture to do to us. It's food on which we feast, not medicine, to be choked down. The point of a daily quiet time is not to fulfill an obligation, to just keep another rule. Instead, the point of a daily quiet time is that here, at that point, we are put in touch with the mind of God. And so I start sending out some notices by email to the church and saying, hey, have you thought about the Lord today? Have you, from the moment that you've awakened, for a couple of minutes, thought about Christ. And people send back emails and say, thanks, that was great encouragement. Boy, this really blessed my life today. I was able to think about God like I haven't before. That was wonderful to hear those things. Well, of course, I don't want an email to be what has to somehow conjure up your spirituality. And I don't want it to become some kind of pattern that we get into and some kind of rule or law. Oh, Kelly sent out an email. Now we have to read the Bible today. Of course not. Instead, we want that to be an opportunity for us to grow and to focus on Christ. And of course, we would want that to happen without any kind of encouragement from anybody. But because there is something that happens within you, moments with the Bible are supposed to be moments listening to the Holy Spirit, not just reading words. In Scripture, we find the personality of the Holy Spirit revealed. We find his will for our lives. Here we find contact, relationship, a walking alongside with God. Time with the Bible is not time with a textbook. It's time sitting before God's throne. Time with the Bible is not like going to law school or memorizing the parts of the body to pass a medical exam. Time with the Bible is conversation with a friend that we completely trust 
and whose counsel we cherish. It's making sure that the things written on our hearts mesh with what God has revealed. It's like hearing for your whole life a story that connects and teaches. There's clearly no problem with Jesus in terms of searching diligently the scriptures. But why do we search them? What gets accomplished when we do? Is there something here on which our minds and our spirits can dwell? And are we going to drink deeply? But don't get me wrong. I'm into exegesis as much as anybody. I love reading my Greek New Testament and finding out the backgrounds behind New Testament words. I love trying to figure out exactly what a verse says. There's a part of that that just turns my crank. And I love it. But I recognize that that's not the ultimate value of why we study Scripture. It's not why we live there. Remember the passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago when we talked about from John 15, the notion of abiding with Christ? Living with Jesus Something is supposed to happen with us where we enjoy Christ, where we enjoy the Spirit, where we enjoy His Word and His presence, and we drink it in deeply because it is just so wonderful to drink in. And so it's not a a law. Read the Scriptures. Don't let any small part of this pass away or you won't make it into heaven the way Jesus describes in Matthew 5, 17. That's not what his point is. In fact, it's interesting, in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus specifically says that he came to fulfill Scripture, and he fulfills it, not just in terms of fulfilling prophecy. He does that. But he himself is the embodiment and the fulfillment of Scripture. When he says, I came that Scripture might be fulfilled, he's saying, I am this fulfillment. And if you have relationship with me, then you have relationship with God's word. And he, of course, is the word of God. And so there's something relational there, something dynamic, something wonderful that happens when a person reads scripture. And I fully understand that as much as anybody, but man, I love also to do that other kind of study. We just need to make sure that that other kind of study isn't the end in itself. We don't do the study in scripture so that we can find out what Greek words mean. Ultimately, that's not the issue. The issue is, what happens between yourself and God? What happens between yourself and the Holy Spirit when you study Scripture? When you read Scripture, not just study it, but drink it in. What happens to you then? That's crucial. Look at this next passage. Just found this in my devotional reading this week. Totally totally turned my crank. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But look at this. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Isn't that beautiful? 
Man, the psalmist, David knew how to write. What I love about this is that the law of the Lord is a delight to him. He doesn't just say, man, I really like to understand this. But he says it delights him. It's like a sweet aroma. It's like a fragrance. He reads the word of God and something wonderful happens inside of him. His his emotions get stirred up. Joy is fostered. He says, I delight in the law of the Lord. Oh, that needs to be our experience. He says that he meditates on it day and night. Why? Because there's a rule. A rule that says you need to read scripture. You need to do it in the morning. You need to do it at night. Of course not. The point is that he can't let it go. He can't stay away from it. He gets caught up in it. Day and night, all the time, I just want to meditate on God's word. I just want to meditate on what God wants to say to me through his spirit in scripture. It's just such a beautiful picture of someone craving after the word of God. If you were to read the rest of the Psalms, you get to, to Psalm 119 especially, and it talks about the, the word of the Lord and the way that it's to have that special place in our life that is so nourishing and so wonderful. And it needs to be for us. Look at what happens as a result. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. What is a stream, or what's a tree that's planted by streams of water? It's one that's constantly nourished. The water constantly flowing through its roots and producing in that tree the kind of fruit that God wants us to produce. Wouldn't you like to be able in your life to say, man, the fruit is being produced in me big time. God is walking, or I'm walking with God right now and God is filling me and living in me and His Spirit and I are so one together. How can that happen? The psalmist says it happens when we meditate day and night on Scripture and we need to be. When I was uh, 16 years old, I ordered a pair of backpacking boots, heavy boots, heavy backpacking boots. You know, they weren't the the light kind that you have nowadays. These were very heavy. And um, when they came to the door, the guy who was delivering them, they were were ordered from Eddie Bauer uh, when Eddie Bauer was just kind of doing mountain climbing stuff back then. And uh, the guy came to the door and he said to my stepmother, he said, somebody's going to do some mountain climbing. And she kind of went, what? What do you mean? Like she didn't want me climbing any mountains. So I got these boots and <clears throat> I told her, well, we're going on a backpacking trip. John Hawsey and I, my best friend, we're going on a backpacking trip together. It's going to be wonderful, but mom, we're not climbing any mountains. I lied. We were going to climb a mountain. We were going to climb Mount Jefferson in the Jefferson Wilderness area in Oregon. That was our intention the whole time. I have to admit it. I lied. So we get up into this mountain, into the wilderness area. We were, you know, spent the first night fished some, talked some. John and I were best friends. We'd been best friends since fourth grade. And I was really looking forward to climbing this mountain together. So we hike off. It was about, I don't know, I think it was about four miles to the bottom of the the peak itself. And then we had to go up the peak. And about two-thirds of the way up the peak, my heels in these brand-new boots were like hamburger. Like, I had huge blisters, and they were so sore, I, could, I just could not walk any further. John and I had planned this trip. We, were gonna, we had planned this for months that we were going to do this. And here I am on the side of this peak, and I've got these monster blisters on the back of my heels. I just could not go any further. So I, I said to my buddy, I said, John, 
I hate to tell you, I cannot go any further. I just can't. My heels are just awful. If, if we're going to make it down this mountain and get back to camp tonight, you know, and I still have feet attached to my ankles, you know, we're going to have to leave right now. I knew that that would break his heart. I knew it. But he, of course, said, yeah, what else can we do? So we went back down. I limped back down. When we got back, it was late. We just went right to our individual tents, laid down, went to sleep, got up the next morning, hardly spoke a word. I knew that my bud was heartbroken. But I also knew, I also knew that for him and for me, the objective of getting to the top of that mountain was not really the experience that we longed for. Like it wasn't just a task we wanted to accomplish so that we could tick it off on our bucket list. Instead, what we wanted (coughs) was the experience together of doing something. And so as he and I sat at breakfast the next morning and talked about our experience, the thing that we both recognized was that we really got accomplished what we wanted. Because the experience of doing it together, doing something with somebody that you'd known and was your best friend since grade four, that's what, the, that's what it was all about. It wasn't just wanting to reach the mountain. It was the experience of getting there. When we got back home, within six months, eight months or so, John's family moved. They moved about 300 miles away. He and I, the last day that he was in town, I went and picked him up in my dad's LTD. And here are two 16, 17-year-old high school guys driving around town together for about 45 minutes, sobbing, absolutely heartbroken because my best friend was leaving. And he, in the car that day, gave me a photograph of himself sitting on a ridge overlooking the mountain that we had climbed together. And it's, it's a strange thing, probably, to see two high school students, two guys, driving around, sobbing for a long period of time. But something real and dynamic and wonderful had happened to us along the journey. And my sense is that when God calls us to be in relationship with him, that he wants something real and authentic and meaningful to happen with us and him at every moment. And while he wants you to be obedient, he doesn't just want obedience. What he wants is for you to know him. He wants you to be in touch with him, in relationship with him. And when I start asking myself, how is this going to happen? How is it that all my Christian brothers and sisters are going to come to have the kind of relationship with God where they know him well and they love being with him? And if they have to be separated from him, they'll cry their eyes out the way the psalmist would. How is that going to happen? And I'm convinced that God really knew what he was doing when he gave us a Bible. And he said, I want you to spend time with me. 
Spend time with me as you read my word. And there will be something that will happen between you and me when you read scripture that cannot happen in any other way. And so why do I keep hammering home things like this? Why do I keep saying this is important? It's not because I have this academic intellectual love with scripture and study. I do. But that's not the point. The point is so that we can sit with God and read scripture and be in relationship with him and with his spirit and with his son and be transformed as his word works a miracle in our hearts. And so I exhort you, oh man, I commend you to read scripture. Meditate on it day and night and allow God's word to impact you and change you. We sometimes move away from this church. I'm afraid the generations that are coming up aren't as committed to this task as we need to be. And I pray that God does something to change that trend and to move us back into Scripture the way God calls us to. Let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you for the privilege we have, the blessing we have of you revealing yourself in Scripture to us. God, I know, I've experienced so many times firsthand how we can be transformed, and I praise you for that privilege and blessing. Thank you for the way that your Spirit works through the Bible to teach us and to change us. Father, help it never to be for us drudgery or something merely intellectual. Help us instead to experience you there. Meet us there, God. Shape us. Relate to us. Open us. Open our hearts that we can be changed by you. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.